0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, you are listening to New Books in Religion, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I'm pleased to be with Randall Balmer, John Phillips Chair in Religion at Dartmouth College, to talk about his new book, Passion Plays How Religion Shaped Sports in North America, published by University of North Carolina Press 2022. Randall Balmer was a late convert to sports talk radio, but he quickly became addicted, just like millions of other devoted American sports fans. As a historian of religion, the more he listened, Balmer couldn't help but wonder how the fervor he heard related to religious practice. Houses of worship once railed against Sabbath-busting sports events, but today most willingly accommodate Super Bowl Sunday. On the other hand, basketball's innovator, James Naismith was an ardent follower of muscular Christianity and believed the game would develop religious character, but today those religious roots are largely forgotten. Here, one of the most insightful writers of American religious of American religion trains his focus on the other great passion, team sports, to reveal their surprising connections. From baseball to basketball and gridiron football to ice hockey, Ballmer explores the origins and history of big-time sports from the late 19th century to the present with entertaining anecdotes and fresh insights into their ties to religious life. Referring to Notre Dame football, the Catholic Sun called its fandom a kind of sacramental, and legions of sports fans reading passion plays will largely recognize exactly what that means. Randall, thank you so much for joining me today on the New, Bo- New Books Network podcast.
0: Jackson, I'm delighted to be here, thank you.
1: Right, well before we get into the content of the book, tell me a little bit briefly about your academic background and the impetus for this book, which you discuss a little bit about in the introduction.
0: I do, yes. Well, my academic background is, uh, I'm I'm a scholar of religion in North America, and I've been at it for a good, good bit of time. I did my undergraduate degree at a little school called Trinity College in Deerfield, Illinois and then i did a masters degree on the same campus and then uh, decided to go to uh, Princeton, actually for a doctorate uh, in uh, in religion where i studied american religious history in kind of the broadest sense of uh, of that term and the the impetus for the book it's uh, it's it, really two two roots to the book uh, one is uh, the more immediate route was my introduction to sports radio in the early 1990s. And at that time, I was uh, working in New York City, and uh, I just became addicted. I I couldn't believe that uh, these uh, sports radio hosts could sustain conversations and debates for hours and hours and hours about whether or not Joe Torre should have lifted the starting pitcher with two outs in the bottom of the sixth inning. Inning, uh, or whether the uh, Giants should have uh, punted on uh, fourth and three at the 42 yard line, or whatever it might be. But, you know, again, the, the, the passion and the intensity is what really caught my attention. So that was, it got me thinking about this. But the, the real roots actually go back to my graduate school days. Uh, My mentor or one of my mentors at at Princeton was a colonial historian who was one of the smartest people I've ever encountered, just an extraordinary man. And he was a a colonial historian, but he was really a sports fan and he loved to talk about sports. And so at various times, he would kind of just (laughs) kind of break out into these uh, rhetorical riffs about Uh, baseball as an immigrant game, which I expect we'll probably talk about here in a few minutes, or football as a military game, so forth. They didn't talk about hockey, so uh, if my hockey chapter doesn't measure up to the rest, that's probably why, because um, uh, John didn't talk too much about this. But at any rate, this was 40 years ago, and uh, I was uh, playing on the history department uh, summer softball team uh, during my time there at Princeton. And actually one of my proudest accomplishments was being asked to manage that team. I haven't figured out a way to put that on my resume yet, but uh, I may at some point. Uh, but uh, John you know, you just got me thinking about this. So in many ways, this book has been just stating for 40 years or so <laughs> as I've tried to come in terms with it. And uh, I'd like to think that I've added uh, some more material uh, from what he talked about and sadly uh, the book is is dedicated to him as well as his his wife mary but sadly uh, john didn't leave live to see it he succumbed to covid um, a couple of years ago so uh, that's the that's the story much uh, much longer introduction than you probably wanted there but that that gives you a, a background for understanding the the book
1: no, the the length was was perfectly fine. I, I, you mentioned that you've been thinking about this book for forty years, and I can't help but think of the massive tectonic shifts that have occurred in American religious practice expression just within, especially that time frame. You argue in the book that sports has essentially replaced traditional religious expression or practice in the United States, and I think that is much more so in the increasing secularization in the United States over over these past half century. What about sports fosters such a sense of devotion amongst its its fans in the contemporary Anglophone North America? It's, it's,
0: it's, a, it's a great question and I'm not sure I can answer it fully, but I one of the things I argue in the book is that particularly for the demographic of white males, Organized sports, organized team sports offers an alternate universe. And when you think about it, it is really quite a special place because it is the, first of all, it is the proverbial level playing field, right? I mean, and in, 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 in all of these sports demand a level playing field physically, but it's a level playing field, uh, organized sports may be the closest we have in our society to a perfect meritocracy. Now, I'm not denying for a moment that issues of race and gender or economic privilege factor into whether or not someone actually competes uh, on on the playing field, uh, particularly at the higher higher levels. I'm not... I'm not setting that aside at all, but the fact remains that again, at the highest levels, college or professional sports, collegiate or professional sports, if you're not talented, you're not going to play. <laughs> so it is—it's—it is, it's, it is a, a meritocracy, and I think it's probably the closest we have in our society. And I think one of the reasons that white males, in particular, are gravitating to organized sports. And by the way, that the, the data that we have bear this out. This is really, this fandom is primarily white male. But one of the reasons for the attraction is not only is it a level playing field, but it is also an orderly universe. All four of the major team sports that I write about, baseball, football, hockey, and basketball, are very carefully regulated. That is to say uh, you have straight uh, f- uh, um, baselines, right? Uh, in uh, first baselines, uh, the third baseline, uh, the the gridiron is very meticulously laid out. Uh, all sorts of uh, right angles to these fields. And the two exceptions to that, I think, are, are also telling. The, f- the first would be the the rounded edges of a hockey rink, which recall the Backyard ponds where hockey is played in Canada um, so uh, avidly, uh, including uh, for people like Wayne Gretzky, who grew up playing in his backyard. And the other partial exemption to that is the baseball outfield that is not necessarily linear. Uh, particularly in older ballparks or in the newer ballparks that are trying to replicate the charm of the earlier ball, ballparks, uh, but that to me signifies uh, the 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 dec- decades where baseball was in in, in uh, developed. That is to say, this is a t- at a time in the nineteenth century when we didn't know what the frontier was. Um, Frederick Jackson Turner Turner the famous historian said that the frontier ended in 1890 and you know we can debate about that but nevertheless at that time uh, so a batted ball theoretically could go forever right and when these baseball fields began to be delineated and delimited Uh, we still weren't sure what the frontier was. So that's why you you have all these irregular outfield fences. Now, that's that's probably a little bit, pressing it a bit too far, but I think you you probably get my point. And then back to my main point, which is about uh, white males gravitating to organized sports as as fans. Uh, This is an alternate universe that is unambiguous in many ways. Something is either fair or it's foul. It's either inbounds or it's out of bounds. And there's no room for discretion or very little room for discretion, and even less now with video review in in really all of these sports. Um, so uh, you know the example I use is that you know a, a batter takes strike three. The umpire says strike three, you're out. He can't turn back to the bat to the umpire and say, you know gee, ump- I." I had a bad night last night. I I didn't get much sleep. My sister was just diagnosed with terminal cancer you know, give me a break here. You know, give me a, a fourth strike. You just don't do that, right? As Bill Veck, one of the the great um, sports impresarios of the 20th century said, uh, when you're called out a strike three, even the best lawyer in the world can't get you off. <laughs> but I think that's part of the attraction. In a world that is perceived, and I want to emphasize the word perceived here, in a world that is perceived as stacked against White American white males, sports offers this respite, this uh, this uh, alternate universe, where uh, everything is orderly in a way that they don't perceive the world to be uh, at large.
1: I think that was a, a revealing argument that I I fully agree with. I remember that in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that my Twitter feed and that the many of the trending topics on twitter with with if they weren't about ukraine they were about sports even though the super bowl had ended there was no baseball there was still a large demographic of social media users that flocked to this uh this hobby this passion even in the midst of a cataclysmic conflict uh with global repercussions in europe yeah, so
0: I'll I'll give you one more um, example of that. I I agree entirely. Uh, I remember, and this was, again, when I was listening to sports radio quite quite regularly, uh, I was kind of, uh, again, I I was so fascinated with the whole phenomenon at the time. But the only time I remember the sports hosts talking about anything outside of the world of sports for any uh, amount of time was... The O.J. Simpson trial, which of course was sports as well. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. And isn't it interesting, I mean, just to, on a tangential note about the sportscasters, a lot of them who do the talk radio, that emerged simultaneously with conservative talk radio, Rush Limbaugh and those types. And a lot of those uh, sports talk radio, I mean, Rush Limbaugh famously was was an NFL broadcaster in like the late 90s at one point, And uh, a lot of those Big um, sports pundits were very conservative in their politics. Yeah, I hadn't really made that
0: connection, but uh, I expect you're probably right about
1: that. Yeah, I, I just always seen that if there, if there's, uh, yeah, I mean there's there are noticeable examples. I and and I think maybe kind of a pundit of an earlier age, not so much, but a lot of those brash kind of uh, sports. Radio talk host that you're describing emerged simultaneously with the conservative talk radio and also the, the shock jock kind of Howard Stern type. So, so uh, you focus on four sports baseball, gridiron football, ice hockey, basketball. Why these four particular sports? There's also, you know, as opposed to golf. And then you, you mentioned that these books not only emerged in New England all of them, or at least the Northeastern corridor of North America. But they also had a very strong connection to what was called muscular Christianity. So so not only elaborate on why you picked these four sports, but they all, why did they all emerge very similarly? Sure. Uh, well, why I, I chose those four, um,
0: one, of, one of the historic developments In these games, is the transition from what historians call mob games to regulated sports. And in all four of those sports, you have that very clearly laid out. Now, you don't have it so much, well, you do in in basketball too. Um, Some of the early games of basketball were 50, believe it or not, 50 players on a team in a basketball court, right? So that's a mob game. That is, you know, everybody's kind of uh, going in there. But one of the, one of the developments in these sports in the in the 19th and, and early 20th centuries is that they become regulated, so the fields become delineated, for one thing. Uh, early games of lacrosse, which is the direct uh, ancestor of hockey, for example, talked about a uh, thousand players uh, playing lacrosse yeah, with no boundaries whatsoever. So that, that's one of the developments. Now, so all of those, all the four major sports, really make a transition from being a mob game to being more regulated. And that, that interested me. Soccer. Um, I, I thought about talking about soccer. I just don't, I just didn't really see the connections that I wanted to make. That is to say in many ways, soccer is still a mob game. And I don't mean that as a criticism um, because you have a very large field. You have people kind of, the, the players kind of milling about Um uh, and so it's still sort of a mob game. But the other thing, the, the larger issue was that I just really didn't see the kind of symbolic world in soccer that I see in these other major sports. So I wanted to talk about the symbolic world behind those sports. So that's that's really why I, I decided that. Now, there was a second part of the, that question that I've forgotten what
1: you asked. Sure. Uh, these How did these sports emerge in relationship to muscular Christianity or, or just late postbellum American Christianity? Sure, yeah,
0: well, first of all, muscular Christianity is a movement that really began in, in Britain. And it was a response to what um, a lot of people, particularly churchmen understood as a sort of a feminization of religion. And historians have talked about the feminization of religion in the 19th century. That is to say that as uh, men began working outside the home Going to factories, working in sedentary office jobs, and so forth, they really were removed from the domestic sphere. Uh, they began to uh, to fraternize and socialize with uh, other men rather than families and 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 uh, extended family networks and so forth. And so, what happens is that they begin to abandon the churches as well. At the same time, women. Uh, particularly middle class women, white middle class women who are, have a lot of discretionary time, they begin to invest themselves more and more into the life of local church congregations and parishes and that sort of thing. Well, a lot of the churchmen in England said this is not a good development. First of all, our men are becoming sedentary, they're becoming uh, uh, not only effeminate uh, because they're not out doing manly things, you know, <laughs> taking long hikes and and you know, the Boy Scouts, for example, was not a response, was a reaction to that, that development. Uh, but also, uh, the faith has become too feminized. And so there was this whole movement that began to be called uh, muscular Christianity that valorized the, the, um, the robust Christian. And that, uh, those sensibilities came over to the United States, of course, in, in the late 19th century through various channels. And what happens is that a lot of the early advocates for sports and physical activity are really also people who are uh, touting the importance of muscular Christianity. Uh, The best example of that probably would be James Naismith, who invented basketball. Uh, Naismith was a fascinating individual, Uh, grew up in Canada, a uh, uh, studied at McGill university where he was introduced to football and, and to other sports into the ymca which by the way ymca would be kind of the 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 uh, ultimate example of muscular christianity right uh, a place where uh, young men could go particularly if they've come recently into the cities and find recreation and housing and fraternity and so forth and that, that, and that sort of thing. So May Smith is is affiliated with the YMCA and he goes to the YMCA training school after his time at McGill, which is now Springfield college in Springfield, Massachusetts. And his instructor there, Luther Gillick um, challenged Naismith to come up with a game that would occupy young men between the baseball and the football seasons, had to be played indoors, had to be played in a very constricted space because it was indoors. And so Naismith, of course, came up with basketball. And of course we can get into some of the stories there if you, if you want to, but uh, basketball then becomes really an expression of muscular Christianity. And it also, by the way, is the quintessential urban game because It's played in a very constricted space, and the object of the game is to maneuver within that constricted space without impeding the progress of others, which is a metaphor for life in the city, Um, walking down Fifth Avenue at lunch hour or Times Square in the evening or... um, Michigan Avenue at rush hour, uh, you try to have to maneuver within a very uh, constricted space. So basketball, in many ways, is the quintessential muscular Christianity game. But having said that, the other games, uh, some of the boosters of these other games, particularly
1: uh, hockey, were very much affiliated with uh, muscular Christianity. Did muscular Christianity endorse violence as a means of uh, masculating men,
0: no, I wouldn't say that it did. I, I, I think uh, you know, violence has always been a, a, a tough issue for organized sports, uh, particularly with uh, hockey and, and football. And I think football in particular, because um, even though you have violent outbreaks in hockey, as we all know, particularly professional hockey, uh, hockey uh, violence rather is not scripted into the game itself the way it is with football. Uh, so if, if football is a very violent game. And I think uh, that's, again, that's, I think, frankly, that's part of its attraction <laughs> for white males, is this uh, sort of uh, vicarious violence that uh, is carried out on, uh, on the field. So, But I wouldn't say that the, the advocates for muscular Christianity were um, uh, pushing violence. Uh, they were f- uh, pushing physical activity more than, than, in a kind of generic sense, rather than violence.
1: So to go to our first sport, we talked a little bit about basketball and football, but when I was uh, in college, I read a short biography by Paul Johnson of George Washington. And within 10 pages, Johnson makes a startling claim that during the Revolutionary War, George Washington played baseball. And you speak about the origins of baseball that are, let's say, a bit deeper and a bit more mysterious than the common Cooperstown narrative of Abner Doubleday, you know, inventing the game on in in the dirt, etc. So, where did baseball come from, and how does it reflect that? You 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 say it reflects a countercultural ethos. Yes, right, yeah.
0: Well, uh, baseball. First of all, one of the characteristics of. Um, of religion generally is mythology, and there's certainly mythology surrounding the origins of, of baseball. Of course, the the, uh, the famous Cooperstown myth that Abner Doubleday uh, kind of uh, scratched uh, the the field in in the sand. There, are, by the way, there are very there are a lot of variations on this story. So the one I'm giving uh, is not necessarily the the. Uh, accepted myth, <laughs> but it is a myth, that he invented in Cooperstown, New York, and then it was played immediately in uh, Finney's Field and so forth. It's a wonderful story. Uh, the problem is that it is, there's There's no truth to it. Uh, uh, Admiral Doubleday actually was a a cadet at West Point at the time that he was supposedly invented the game of baseball. And uh, he never, in the course of his 70-some years on this earth, claimed credit for (laughs) inventing baseball. He was a a Union Army hero in the Civil War, but uh, he, he didn't invent baseball. So, you know, then where does baseball come from? Well. One of the great stories around the, the emergence of baseball is that uh, A.G. Spalding, one of the early um, advocates and, and uh, boosters of the game, wanted to say that baseball was entirely American-made. It, it, it did not descend from uh, the British game of rounders or cricket or the Dutch game of stool ball or anything of that sort. And so he, um, he set up this commission called the Mills Commission to study the origins of baseball and they got all sorts of uh, stories and they decided to adopt the uh, Doubleday story as the so-called official origin uh, story of baseball. Well, it's not true. Uh, the earliest indication we have of baseball in the United States is Pittsfield, Massachusetts in 1790. And, uh, uh, there are all sorts of stories about baseball and people calling this game baseball again long before it was supposedly invented in Cooperstown, New York. So the mythology surrounding the game is, 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 I think, fascinating in all sorts of ways. But the uh, to get to, to the second part of your question, the countercultural characteristic of, of baseball has to do with the persistence of uh, the rural rural bucolic American ethos in the midst of the Industrial Revolution when the game really was developed. Um, One way to look at this is to, uh, if if you're taking a trip into a major city and the, the plane comes in, Uh, over the city, whether it's New York or Atlanta or whatever it might be, Detroit, uh, you notice that in the midst of this gray, concrete, urban landscape, there are very few extensive patches of green. And when you see them, very often they're going to be baseball fields. So baseball was really a rural game that was played in the cities in the 19th century. And it was developed during the Industrial Revolution, but it rejects the icon of industrialism, which was the clock. It's the only major sport that is not governed by a clock. So even there, baseball is countercultural, aside from the fact that you've got this green Gorgeous field in the midst of all these concrete cans and canyons uh, in, in 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 major cities. Uh, it it rejects industrialism, and so in that way, it's it's countercultural.
1: One sport that seems to not be countercultural, that seems to have embraced full sail the industrial revolution and its developments, is gridiron football. How has gridiron football adopted, formalized, incorporated? uh from its you know roots as a kind of anarchic mob game to very regimented formulated game how is it adopted practices not only of industrialization but as you make clear in your chapter reflects developments of industrialized warfare
0: it does yes and and, and first of all the the, the way that it, it comports with the Industrial Revolution is the clock. And uh, Walter Camp, who is often considered the father of American football, actually worked for his family's New Haven Clock Company in New Haven, Connecticut. (laughs) And so he decided that football was going to be governed by time, by a clock. And so a clock was introduced to to football. But the larger influence really is uh, the Civil War. And football really does emerge after the Civil War, in the years following the Civil War. And it's played initially by had the sons, brothers, and nephews of Union Army officers at elite northeastern schools, particularly Princeton, also Rutgers, and then later, of course, Columbia, Harvard, Yale, Penn, and so forth. Uh, so it, it it mimics the Civil War battlefield. Football is a violent game, as we talked about earlier, but the violence is associated with warfare. And the whole idea behind football, it's a very simple game in many ways, it has to do with the conquest and the defense of territory, which is what was happening at Bull Run and, and Gettysburg and Antietam and all these other places well. You, the whole idea was to conquer the enemy territory. Well, that's what football is all about. And to me, what's fascinating about football is the extent to which the language of militarism really dominates the game and has from the earliest days. So for example, these days, even today, you'll hear sportscasters talk about the quarterback as the field general who unleashes long bombs or bullet passes. Uh, you talk about uh, trench warfare, you know, between the offensive line and the defensive line. Uh, you talk about um Uh, Well, I mean, uh, uh, even the the nomenclature surrounding the the culture of football, Uh, scouting, right? Uh, training camps, <laughs> uh, all of this language. And, and then, of course, you know you get into marching bands at the college level, uh, uh, the, the the national anthem. Of course, which that's common to all the sports, but the national anthem is particularly prominent in football, it seems to me. And very often, to underscore the point about the military game, uh, major games you'll have uh, after the, the national anthem, you'll have uh, jets, military jets, screaming <laughs> across the sky overhead. Uh, it's it, the militarism just uh, just uh, permeates the game. And in fact, in the early years of its development, one of the people who really saw this was a guy who dabbled in military history, a guy by the name of uh, Lauren Deland, D-E-L-A-N-D. And he, uh, he watched a football game. It was the Harvard playing Yale, I believe. Don't quote me on that. And he just, as a military historian who particularly had, had studied uh, Napoleon, and his uh, warfare tactics, he was fascinated by this. And so he began devising all of these uh, elaborate plays that would uh, that would uh, uh, draw on military tactics. And uh, this is what really Walter Camp, the father of American football, was looking for when he developed the game. He wanted a game that would have all these uh, strategic possibilities. And by the way, he's the person who uh, substituted the line of scrimmage for the rugby scrum in football. So the reason you have these football team, football teams lining up against each other between plays is because you have a line of scrimmage that separates the two rather than the, the scrum of uh, rugby, which is more of a mob game, for example.
1: Yes. I'm, I'm also reminded uh, uh, with comparisons with the military of the coach who has those elaborate charts of play planning of a set that, that when you read a book in Civil war history it's reminiscent of the the movement of armies by generals so so to, just to dwell on the military connection um for a little bit the the mecca of college football is the American South what about the American South whether it be through military I, the south has a lot of bases we know that but what about the American South that's bred this Ferocious love of college football and teams like the Crimson Tide and the Bulldogs.
0: No, I, I think you, you said it uh, in your question. It, it has to do with the fact that the South is really a military culture, and you know, again, you can and I do cite statistics to, to support that. But the, uh, the the fact that militarism is so pervasive uh, in the South, uh, you look at the number of, of uh, enlisted men. Uh, in the country overwhelmingly they come from the south more than other other regions of the country and I think that's that's a big part of the appeal now in the book uh, in the football chapter I make the point that uh, football at, was as we talked about uh, really developed in the northeast by uh, by the elites essentially Protestant elites at these various schools and in order for put football to attain its near universal popularity, it is the most popular sport of all the four team sports, it had to overcome what I call the, or I had to address what I call the three R's, region, religion, and race. And so the popularity of football in the South was a way for uh, the South to appropriate this Northeastern game and a way also for Southerners to refight the Civil War. So when a Southern school, such as when Alabama beats the University of Pennsylvania, when they prevail over a Northern school, and again, there's I, I have all sorts of quotes in the book about this, they see this as ultimately a vindication of, of the South and, and the, the righteousness of the Southern cause because now we Southerners have beat these uh, damn Yankees on the football field. So that's the, the importance for the region. The same thing happens really with religion. That is to say, again, this is a Protestant game. So when Boston College or Fordham and particularly Notre Dame pick up football, they start playing football. When they start beating these Protestant schools, it provides enormous satisfaction because here you have the Catholics beating the Protestants at their own game, and thereby making their place, uh, securing their place in American society, symbolically if not
1: um, in actuality. And and also that that you you mention in in quotes and anecdotes that the with this race issue that the incorporation of African Americans into college football both first against the Southern teams and then in Southern teams was, it seems an important uh, cultural shift away from those prevailing notions of Jim Crow racism, right? That, that no, longer, no longer could you look at in the South as African-Americans as these uh, kind of lazy types who needed the paternalistic support of the South. They were in fact beating Southern whites at, at their own game.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, this transition did not go smoothly in many places. I mean, in the schools in the north, you know, it it tended to be a little bit easier. But uh, again, I have stories in that chapter of Greg Page, uh, the University of Kentucky football player. Uh, The first practice, uh, he was piled on by his uh, teammates. Uh, was paralyzed and died 38 years, days later. I mean, he, you know, he integrated the University of Kentucky football team, but he paid for it with his life. And there are other examples I put, it, I, I talk about as well, uh, including a Drake University quarterback who probably would have won the Heisman Char- uh, Trophy, uh, a black man, uh, had he not been um, uh, savagely uh, injured. By uh, a lineman for Oklahoma State University, so it wasn't always easy. Uh, Alabama is, you know, um, and again, I, I, I in that chapter I try to uh, try to juxtapose the integration of the Alabama football team with what was happening in Alabama at the time during the civil rights struggle, and I also say that uh, Paul Brer Bryant, uh, for all of his genius on the football field, uh, he was considered a racial moderate at that time uh, by by the Contemporary standards, and yet he and George Wallace really were pretty much working hand in hand to deny African Americans uh, um, equality uh, in in Alabama. And how history might have been different if uh, if uh, Bryant uh, Paul Bear Bryant, who had enormous cachet as a uh, as a figure in in Alabama at that time had uh, you know even spoken timidly <laughs> about racial equality, that would have made a huge difference in the 1960s. As it was, again, as I, I talk about the story in the book, um, it was only after Alabama was uh, really humiliated by African-American players playing for the University of Southern California that uh, Paul Bryant uh, decided that uh, he needed to integrate his football team
1: yes yes i did a little uh, uh go trojans uh i am a i'm a former alum of usc so i i know that that game well um uh yes it, it is still amazing how much sway football players have in alabama considering one of their junior senators is is a is a famous football coach um so moving on to our our friendly neighbors of the north we speak about hockey where did hockey you mentioned that hockey comes from a native American tradition, but then the sport, the sport seemed to embody the Elan of Canadian culture perfectly. How did that develop?
0: Yeah, that's not no accident actually. Um, And I, I find this fascinating as I got into this uh, and I have to say the hockey is the game. I probably know least personally of all the four major sports, but as I got into the research, I found it fascinating. Um, the same year as the Canadian Confederation, which was 1867, there was a dentist in Montreal by the name of George Beers, W. George Beers. And he had uh, he re- been fascinated by lacrosse. He, he went out and watched the dating Americans playing uh, lacrosse, or what they called the And he was just fascinated by this game, but he was also a Presbyterian. And as you probably know, the catchphrase for Presbyterians is doing everything decently and in order, right? It's very Scotch, very Scots in many ways. Uh, And so he saw this game, saw the Native Americans playing lacrosse, and he said, this is a great game, but it needs to be regulated. (laughs) It has to be orderly. And so he proceeds then to write up these rules, uh, again, to delineate boundaries. This is, again, the the transition from mob game to to regulated play. And he decides that lacrosse should be Canada's game. Again, this is the year of the Canadian Confederation, 1867. And he says, he's quite specific about this. He says, if we are going to be our own people, we can't adopt baseball because that's you know, the people down south in in the United States. And we can't uh, stick with cricket. That's too genteel. It's too British. It's too, too fussy. I mean, he didn't use those words, but that's, that's the gist of what he was saying. Lacrosse is our game. It's lacrosse captures the, the wild character of the Canadian wilderness and so forth. So then lacrosse, of course, um, evolves into hockey and there's all sorts of stories surrounding that. But as it does, uh, it, it's very clear that that hockey is Canada's game. It does reflect, uh, you know, the the, the wind ice and the Canadian wilderness, uh, the 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 rugged uh, character of play. Even the fact that you you have uh, fights breaking out in hockey, right? Uh, and it, it's it's so striking to me as I watch hockey. Uh, The kind, the level of violence that is permitted in hockey, you just don't have in the other game. Now I know that fans love it, and that's why they're not going to clamp down on it. But you know, this sort of behavior would never be tolerated in the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball. But it—that's also the Canadian wilderness, because in the Canadian wilderness, where the The Mounties are not available on every street corner in these vast expanses of wilderness. People take the law into their own hands. And the authorities come in and adjudicate matters later. And that's precisely what happens with the ho- fights in hockey. the The referees are there, but they don't intervene. Uh, they they let it play out, and then later they come in and impose their uh, their penalties. So, in many ways, hockey is Canadians' a game, Canada's game. And um, of course, the great crisis, the great uh, uh, proving point, was the nineteen seventy two Summit Series when uh, all stars, essentially all stars from uh, Canada, played against the Soviets and uh, you know the going into the that series the canadians thought well this is our game this is not going to be a problem well they, they soon found themselves very much on the on the short end of that series and it was only a last second goal 34 seconds left that um, that 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 say the salvaged that uh, summit series for the canadians over the soviets and i have a friend who um former student who's a Canadian and who follows this very closely, he says that uh, the people in Canada uh, will remember where they were at that moment, uh, if they were alive at the time, much the way that many of us remember John Kennedy's assassination or the Challenger disaster or whatever it might be. There was such, that was such a, an important defining moment for Canadians.
1: You, Canada also developed in, you mentioned Quebec, Montreal, a Catholic culture how is that Catholicism reflected in at least you mentioned one part of the game? Yeah,
0: I, I'm fascinated by this. And 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 frankly, Jackson, I wish I was able to find more kind of solid historical evidence to, 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 to make my point. So it has to be speculative because I don't have that evidence. But what's fascinating to me about hockey is that as Roman Catholics start playing the game, and that seems to have occurred with uh, Irish Catholics uh, playing in college and then French Canadians uh, going to these same schools uh, these catholic schools uh, that's where they were introduced uh, to hockey and about that time as canadian uh, sorry as catholics start playing hockey the penalty box is introduced to hockey and i think that is remarkably similar to a catholic confessional <laughs> uh, where the miscreant uh, is uh, is sent away and, and and cordoned off from the rest of the game and uh, this is where he publicly uh, does his penance for his uh, uh, having violated the rules usually through fighting is just typically what <laughs> what brings somebody to the to, to the penalty box but uh, it's very similar I think to the confessional and it, in many ways, combines both Catholic and Protestant deterrence to sin. That is to say, uh, you have the, the the box, the confessional, but it's also a public sort of uh, shaming, much the way the Puritans would put uh, deviants into the stocks and the village green, uh, and as, as an example of uh, how not to behave, so too the penalty box, which the players, by the way, call the sin bin, uh, is uh, very much like a confessional, I think.
1: Yeah. And I, uh, to, to, to also to the, speak about the point of violence in hockey, I believe hockey was the last sport of these four that you mentioned that required a helmet and that many players uh, who were grandfathered in at least until the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, still did not, because they grandfathered in, did not wear a helmet in hockey. I just, with that game, I just could, could absolutely not imagine it. So we move on to our, our final sport. You've already mentioned a bit about the origins of basketball. Uh, dr naismith but but tell a little bit more about how it seems how democratic it is and how responsive it is to again this urban reality and how a lot of the participants in basketball are people shaped and conditioned by American 20th century urban culture
0: yes absolutely and first of all the uh, basketball was invented in 1892 I think that's right, December 1892. Um, I believe that's right. (laughs) I always kind of get it mixed up because it was right at the the, the turn of that year. Um, And that is a time when there is a massive migration to the cities. So, uh, And again, I have all these uh, statistics and figures in the book uh, that I don't have them immediately on my mind, but uh, they're, they're, America is going, moving to the cities in huge numbers. And that's precisely the moment that basketball appears on on the scene. Uh, Naismith was very clear. He wanted a game that was, in uh, as you call it, democratic in the sense that anybody could play the game, but not a lot of equipment. So that's true. As long as you have a ball and a hoop, you can play basketball, whether it's on uh, a gravel driveway or on an asphalt in, in the city or uh, of course, uh, on a basketball court, uh, a regulation court, uh, but it, it's an urban game in many ways because, uh, again, symbolically, as I talked about before, it's, you, you play it in a very constricted space, which mimics life in, in the city. But also because the people who are drawn to basketball are urban dwellers for the most part. And I spent a good bit of time talking about the Great Migration, which is when African-Americans began to move north into the cities uh, around uh, World War I or the years before World War One, the first few decades of the, of the 20th century. And uh, what was waiting for them was basketball, uh, in part in the form of uh, black YMCAs, which began to burgeon at that time. Uh, but also just availability of playing basketball on the streets. And this is where it was played in many cases, or of course on, on playgrounds, uh, as we know today. So this becomes a, an, a kind of an expression of urban life. And even uh, another religious dimension to it, aside from Naismith and uh, muscular Christianity is that uh, a lot of ministers, a lot of pastors, particularly in the African-American community, see basketball as a way to try to um, ease tensions between neighborhoods or uh, try to um, at least attenuate the presence of gang violence and, and that sort of thing. So basketball in that way is, uh, is kind of a healing game for, for many people.
1: Uh, And basketball has incorporated not only large amounts of African-Americans, but also it was a game defined by participation of Catholics and Jews. I I, I think uh, of these, you mentioned these groups that are kind of Catholic or Jewish YMCA equivalents that participated in basketball. What what appealed, why did basketball appeal to um, a wider religious diversity than say, uh, hockey or, or football?
0: Sure. I, again, I think it's because it's well. First of all, the the urban nature of of the game, and, and it had you know it is the case that uh, Jews and Catholics tend to be more uh, urbanized than than other people. But also, I think it's a way for them to to kind of um, and this is really the case with all of the sports. This is the way that you kind of prove yourself to be an American. That is to say, if you're successful athletically, or if you at least compete athletically then you make your case for being an American. So for example, in baseball, Sandy Koufax was huge. And before that, Hank Greenberg uh, of the Detroit Tigers uh, were hugely important individuals for the Jewish community because the Jews could say, "Hey, we've got one of our own who's playing this game, he's competing at the highest level, which means that we are part of the society. We can compete at the highest level." I mentioned Notre Dame earlier with football. Uh, when Notre Dame beats Southern Methodist University or some other Protestant school, you know, this says, "Hey, we've we've arrived. We've we, we've made it uh, in in society." Uh, so I think it's very important to um, to to. These ethnic groups—they're not really. They're more than that, obviously. They're major parts of uh, of our society, but these very important for these groups that at least at one time were seen as minority groups to be able to succeed on the on the court or on the field, whatever the sport or the ice, whatever it might be.
1: Great. So, yes, exactly that. that Sports is this assimilating goes back to the original point of meritocracy. Anyone, as long as they can play the sport, can participate in it. So I'll I'll do a penultimate question beyond the sports itself. Back to this this sports as or religion. I live in a town that's just next to Eastside or Eastlake Christian Church, which is a church that you mentioned at the beginning of your final chapter. I, I the church that it's a mega church that I've been to in fact uh, several times. Uh, uh what is the future of american religion in the midst of this sports you know devotion uh, how are theological doctrines and sacraments are going to compete with these these tangible lived ecstasies of home runs and touchdowns i can understand this is an extremely broad question but just the first things that come to your mind i mean where where is sports going to fit in this culture that seems to be a lot more passionate about sports, at least in certain demographics?
0: Well, I don't have any worries about the future of sports. I think they're going to stick around. I think it's a religion that that, that I worry about uh, in terms – and I say that as a person of faith. Uh, um, I think religion in America right now, this is far too broad a statement, but I'll make it anyway. Religion in America right now is in trouble. And if you look at the figures, the statistics, the surveys, that uh, it bears that out. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that, which I won't get into. That's a whole other interview, probably. <laughs> i have written, written many
1: books on that topic, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: Um, but it, it's very difficult to compete with with sports and, and the devotion that is now directed toward sports. Um, you know, East Lake. you mentioned that, and I, I mentioned that as an example of how religion is trying to work its way around or adapt to the sports ethos. You know, the, the particular example, as, as you know, but I'll just say it for the benefit of others, is that um, the Seattle he- Seahawks, when they were playing on the East coast at one o'clock on uh, Eastern time, that's 10 o'clock in Seattle which is church time for a lot of these places. And East Lake Community Church said, hey, we can't compete. So they changed their service time so that uh, their congregants could watch the Seahawks and then come to church later on, on Sunday. You now that's an example of an accommodation. And <laughs> I don't know, uh, I, I guess we'd have to think further about what that says about uh, society. But I think the other thing that that, I, that occurred to me in the course of writing the book, and I, I included it in the conclusion, moral guidance and moral, well, let me put it differently. Uh, what, what I sometimes refer to as a prophetic voice in our society used to come from the sphere of religion. I'm thinking about people like Dorothy Day or Thomas Merton, Martin Luther King, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, um, you know, you go down the line, uh, Reinald Niebuhr, uh, you know, this is going back into the, into the 20th century, but that's my point. That is to say that this is where at one time we looked for moral guidance. We're not hearing that much these days from religious figures, but it's sports figures who are taking a stand on moral issues people like LeBron James. Now, you know, I'm not a huge basketball fan, but, you know, he's a pretty pretty big name, right? And when he comes out and talks about racial inequality and couches it in moral terms, or Colin Kaepernick, that's a whole other story, which, you know, um, it deserves, again, a, an entire interview, I, I expect. Uh, you know, this is not a religious figure. This is a sports figure. Now, in the case of Kaepernick, he's very much influenced and, and shaped by his faith. And, and uh, he's, he's very clear about that. But it is a sports figure who's providing moral gu- guidance to society these days, and not so much religious figures. So you know, again, you step back from that and say, what does that say about the state of religion in America today? And I have to say, as I argue, at least indirectly in the book, that uh, the real passion in our society these days, I think, is directed towards sports rather than to religion. And the kind of devotion, the kind of um, fealty that we once directed toward god or toward religion or toward you know, toward our church in terms of activity and participation and not to mention money i mean think about the money aspect where's the money going to these days it's going to sports it's not going into the church coffers i think for the most part uh there's a as you say, a huge imbalance, and it's uh, very much tilted I think in the direction of sports and away from religion now again uh, it's a, another conversation, but I think there are there are ways in which religious folks, and particularly religious leaders, have brought this on themselves uh, with the uh, rampant politicization of of the faith over the last uh, forty years or so but that again is a whole different conversation
1: yes i I when I saw the East Lake, I, I immediately remembered that moment, but then also as someone who was very involved in um, church life in the early 2010s in Seattle, my uncle was a Pentecostal pastor, that practice, that practice of not doing church on Sundays because of the Seahawks, that was uh, ever present. Uh, I don't know if mainline churches did that, but evangelical churches that had more fluidity with their scheduling almost always would would, you know, if there's a big Seahawks playoff game, it was, you know, sometimes they wouldn't, they would never do the church. I remember my uncle would just cancel it altogether. There wouldn't be a six o'clock, right? Little like makeup session. So, well, Randall, this has been a phenomenal interview, phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much. Before we go, I just want to ask you uh, one final question. What future projects do you have planned? Uh, and is there, are you going to focus on or talk about sports in the future? Or, or are you going back to your... um <laughs> seen religious right uh, issues.
0: Oh, I, I'm. Uh, I hope not to the religious right. I'm. I'm kind of tired of talking about that. waiting <laughs> about that, but yeah, actually, yeah. The, the, the project I'm working right now is on uh, um, right now is a biography of Mark Hatfield, who was a U.S. Senator from Oregon. Yeah, for sixty for thirty years actually, from 1966 to 1996. Extraordinary individual. Um, I got to know him a little bit toward the end of his uh, career, and uh, even to the point of saying, you know, albeit tentatively, that we became sort of friends, actually. But a remarkable man, uh, arguably the last liberal Republican in America. But also uh, a a devout evangelical, uh, a dedicated Baptist and uh, a man I I admired uh, enormously. So I'm working on his biography right now. And then beyond that, um, well, uh, I don't know. I, I I better not say. I'm uh, thinking about a couple of ideas, but I'm, I'm I'm reaching the end of my run here pretty soon, and so <laughs> I have to figure out how many more books I want to write and on what topics and so forth. But uh, well, it's please, always fun to uh, hear that. The,
1: that <laughs> the biography of, of Marco Hartfield will be – I, I am that that is always a, a political figure who has fascinated me in in He's in, in a lot of ways, and so I'm I'm very much looking forward to that. So yeah. He's Randall, a
0: wonderful, wonderful, admirable man, he really was extraordinary.
1: Yes, he, he was. Yeah, he, yeah. His his articles for um, what what. What became Sojourners? I remember reading those in graduate school. Wow, I, I, just very surprising, uh, prescient stuff. So, Randall, thank you so much for talking about your new book. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt. You have been listening to New Books in Religion, a channel on the New Books Network discussing Randall Balmer's book, Passion Plays How Religion Shapes Sports in North America, published in 2022 by University of North Carolina Press. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day. Goodbye.